Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinars and podcast series Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each, when, each week at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening. Um, as we noted last week, uh, when it was Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel, tonight is uh, Israel's Memorial Day, where we remember uh, those who fell in battle and in conflict uh, in the uh, Defense Forces, and other forces, and also those who uh, who died in uh, terror attacks. And it's a mournful day. We had a, a siren for a one-minute silence uh, tonight, and we're going to have another one tomorrow morning for two minutes. Um, it's a day, obviously, where politics is put aside, everything's put aside, and there's a lot of focus on uh, Israel's wars, uh, those who have fallen. There's uh, uh, normal TV and radio programming is basically stopped for you know, slow and somber music on the on the radio and on the TV. Lots and lots of stories about uh, different soldiers who fell uh, uh, during the wars. Lots of acts of bravery and heroism. Um, so that's tonight, and it's obviously, as many of you will know, it's the day before uh, Israel's Independence Day, which is obviously uh, a completely different mood. It's a day of celebration, uh, and it's become part of Israeli life that they're back to back a, a day of remembrance. Uh, for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for the state and then the day later where we celebrate we will celebrate uh, 73 years uh, since the founding of the state um, but apart from today obviously you know we still have a bit of a, po a political stalemate to get through so we'll we'll start there and uh, we spoke last week about the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu was given the mandate uh, to, to try and form a government within 28 days by President Rivlin. Uh, we're now a week through that. And uh, we talked about three obstacles that Netanyahu has. Uh, the first being Bezalel Smotrich, uh, who of the Religious Zionist Party, who said he wouldn't sit uh, in a government buttressed by or including the Islamist Party Ram. Then we had um, Naftali Benz, the Yamina party, who's, who nominated himself and wouldn't explicitly say he would sit in uh, a rule out sitting in either government, the government of Netanyahu or the change government, as it's called. Um, and then we had uh, the problem of that would only make 59, so he would need two more. Unless, of course, uh, Batal Smotrich uh, decided that he was going to give up the demand that he would not sit in a government buttressed on the outside by Ram, which at the moment doesn't seem to be happening. What Netanyahu has done is he's tried to, first of all, focus on Naftali Bennett. Naftali Bennett uh, brings seven seats to the table, and we're basically, if he was, uh, if he would join, that that would put a lot more pressure on Smotrich. So I think that's the sort of tactic he's taking at the moment. Um, Naftali Bennett is, as we know, before the uh, president gave the first attempt to Prime Minister Netanyahu was negotiating with uh, Yeh Lapid of Yeshatid to have some sort of rotational government to bring in many of those parties of in the change uh, coalition, as we talked about, but that didn't happen. Um, but what is happening is very serious negotiations. 
uh, Bennett and Bibi have met four times, and don't forget there's no great love lost. Bennett was a uh, chief of staff to uh, Bibi in the past, Netanyahu, uh, but over the years there's been a lot of uh, uh, arguments between the two, and even now, as uh, Netanyahu's uh, court case goes on, uh, we're hearing uh, evidence by witnesses against Netanyahu uh, that the Netanyahu family tried to ensure that articles were put in the media that uh, pressed Naftali Bennett and his wife even uh, in a bad light. So Bennett is certainly seeing these, uh, not that any of this will really surprise him, uh, while he's negotiating. Uh, the reports are coming out that negotiations are advanced. Uh, in fact, the negotiating teams have actually been brought in. Um, but the question is what price Bennett will demand and if it's really serious. There is a line of thought uh, and I've heard this from a few different people, that Bennett that isn't serious and doesn't think there's a real chance that Netanyahu will be able to form a government. So he's, so he's trying to look like he's doing everything in bad faith. So at the end of the day, if a right-wing government isn't formed, he'll be able to say, I did everything, I tried everything, I was uh, willing to compromise and help form a right-wing government. And if it doesn't fail, he cannot be blamed. Uh, and then he'll be able to work on an alternative government where he could be first in rotation and become prime minister. Or, I mean, that's part of the motivation. Other part of the motivation may simply be just to get rid of Netanyahu, which is motivation of a lot uh, at the moment. It remains to be seen exactly uh, which is correct. Um, but what we do see, which is interesting, which may give a little bit of credence to the latter theory, is uh, what's happening in the Knesset. Uh, as I think we've explained before, after uh, a new Knesset comes in, when the uh, prime, uh, president gives the mandate to a particular candidate, that candidate uh, is then able to control what's called the Arrangements Committee, which is a very important committee. It's the first committee, which basically not only then decides how to populate the chairmanship of all the other committees in the Knesset, uh, but also uh, who will be on which committee and the, the sort of numbers, but most importantly, the agenda of the Knesset. Um, if the change coalition has it, they may well be moving towards trying to create that all important law from their point of view of disqualifying Netanyahu from becoming prime minister. You know, the, the law that would basically say that uh, uh, a person who has an indictment against them cannot uh, form a government, cannot be prime minister uh, without the control of the arrangements committee that's not possible. And uh, uh, Bibi has tapped uh, his loyal uh, uh, member of Knesset, uh, Miki Zohar, a former uh, coalition, uh, coalition uh, chairman. Um, but the question is exactly what Yamina is doing there. Uh, Likud felt that Yamina would be part of its block, so it assigned a certain amount of seats, but it decided it wasn't going to do it. And at the last minute, Mikuzar had to cancel uh, the vote on the arrangements committee because Yamina hadn't expressly stated which way it would go. So rather than embarrass itself by losing, which would be a disaster, they basically put it off uh, for a week. Um, importantly, with everything else that's going on, now we have absolutely zero committees in the Knesset, no oversight on anything that's going on economically with the COVID, uh, what's going on in Iran, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, moving on to even worse situation, we have a situation where the COVID commit, uh, government committee and the defense, uh, the, the defense cabinet cannot meet because 
there's a disagreement between Benny Gantz, alternate prime minister and prime minister, Netanyahu, who is going to be the next justice minister. Uh, we saw Avi Nisinkorn was justice minister during the, the government, but he resigned when he decided to move away from uh, Benny Gantz's party. Benny Gantz then took it on temporarily, but that temporary, temporary uh, uh, ministerial position ran out on April 1st. There has to be a government decision to basically talk it to someone else. Uh, Netanyahu certainly doesn't want Gantz to carry on because of uh, major issues he's having legally. Um, so basically, at the moment, there's a bit of an impasse there. And Gantz, uh, the cabinet meeting that will discuss uh, basically buying more desperately needed vaccines for the Israel's vaccine program. Uh, Pfizer, uh, in the middle of it, as we know, Pfizer is the company that's given Israel all the vaccines, and it's looking to buy millions more, not just for those who haven't yet had it, also for uh, the potential in the next couple of weeks for uh, Israeli children from the age of 12 to 16 to get it once Pfizer had their approval through the FDA, uh, and even some backup ones in case there are some variants that come along. Uh, this is an agreement that was discussed and closed a long time ago, but Israel has not met, been able to meet and basically uh, pass the budget for such a, a deal. So Pfizer are threatened and said, if you don't meet and pass this, you're going to go back to line, which is obviously a very bad situation. So at the moment, the Knesset isn't working, the government isn't working, especially now we get to really what's been holding the headlines for, for the last week is what's going on with Iran, this so-called shadow war that seems to be slowly moving out of the shadow. We know for many, many years, uh, you know, although it hasn't been openly stated, Israel and Iran have been in this sort of shadow war where it's Israel uh, reportedly had been taking many steps against the Iranian nuclear um, uh, weapons capability, whether it was Stuxnet, whether it was other sort of cyber uh, attacks against the program, whether it was taking out the so-called the so godfather of the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear program, and most recently basically uh, damaging, severely damaging the Natanz uh, facility uh, and really damaging uh, quite a lot of their centrifuges there, potentially, according to some uh, commentators, uh, pushing back at least six months, maybe even a year. Why this is important is because at the moment, Iran uh, and the, uh, the other signatories to the JCPOA are meeting to try and get uh, the US back in. And obviously, as we've heard, the Biden administration has an interest to get back in. There's some uh, sort of uh, steps still to be worked out. But uh, there was this feeling that Iran was really pushing in the last few weeks, even a few months, pushing its program further and further forward to try and use it as leverage to get back into the talks and to extract concessions from the Americans. What Israel reportedly did, and I say reportedly, uh, is that they took away some of that leverage. Um, so that's certainly something that would be welcomed by America and even some of the other Western powers. Certainly Iran uh, and others more favorable to Iran are certainly angry about this. And we saw the Iranian foreign minister in Moscow uh, where he discussed this. Now Iran is trying to gain that leverage back by saying that um, it's going to move its program even on further and increase um, the ability of Iran to get to where it wants to and even uh, to 60% uh, capacity, which is a short step away from uh, weapons capability. Obviously, with a, with a step backwards that happened in Natanz, 
that's not likely at this point, but the fact that they're trying to do this is probably just uh, to regain the leverage that they've lost by this attack on the Natanz nuclear plant. Um, so we see quite a lot going on. They're cynical amongst us, and I have heard some commentators who said that Israel's ratcheting up uh, at this particular moment, uh, pressure on Iran, not just for international purposes, but also for domestic, uh, where uh, Netanyahu trying to form a right-wing government is trying to put pressure and say, look what's going on. We need a government, we need a stable government uh, very quickly. But also, if there were potentially fifth elections, which is a likelihood, uh, because uh, the COVID program was used in the last elections, which is going very well still, uh, there is a feeling that maybe he needs something else. And the Iranian issue could be that something else. Again, that's a cynical look at it, but it's one that's definitely been discussed by some behind the scenes attributing the um, the uptick in attacks against Iran uh, as part of even a domestic political agenda. But again, uh, these are all the issues or some of the issues that have been discussed over last week. So I'm happy to answer any questions on this or any other issue. All right, thank you so much. So the first one in is um, regarding your last point with Netanyahu using the Iran issue uh, to further his political gains. Do you think that would work? It would work. Whether it's true is another thing. You know, um, one, one thing is certain that uh, uh, Netanyahu certainly sees uh, Iran as a great threat, an existential threat. I mean, a lot of people who know him closely, and I've spoken to a lot of people about it, this, this is not a cynical ploy for him. Iran overall is an issue which he sees as, as an existential one, and the Iranian nuclear capability he sees as something that could potentially bring a second Holocaust. You know, these are terms that he's used, he alluded, not even alluded to, he said it pretty outright. You know, as, as I said last, there hasn't been a, a Holocaust Remembrance Day where he hasn't uh, discussed or mentioned or spoken about um, the threat of Iran. We had the, uh, uh, the American Defense uh, Secretary here. And for Israel, the major issue was Iran. Interestingly enough, the Defense Secretary barely mentioned Iran, uh, if at all, during his uh, remarks, but would certainly be kept up to date with anything that Israel's doing. You know, I, think, I don't think Israel at this point would want to go behind Americans' back, especially as America is at the forefront, is a major player uh, in the JCPO, with a possible return, uh, resumption of the JCPOA and everything else that's going on in the region. Um, but is... Uh, is there a certain timing to what's going on? Uh, a, a political clock? It's not inconceivable. Um, you know, again, if you're a cynic and you don't trust Netanyahu, you're going to look at every decision that's made uh, in this period uh, as connected to his political and even legal uh, trials and tribulations, the distract and deflect tactic, uh, because every day Israelis are being bombarded by testimony from uh, witnesses uh, against Netanyahu for the prosecution, and it's looking bad. Uh, so far, the first witness uh, was the head of the Walla news portal, which was allegedly, uh, which is obviously yet to be proven, but this is what is being alleged, that uh, he was being asked daily by his boss, who was also the head of Bezek, which is a major communications company in Israel, to basically change everything on the website, any article about Netanyahu to be favorable, write bad articles about any opponents, uh, make sure that uh, the whole Netanyahu family was seen in a pleasant light. And in return, the quid pro quo was there'd be 
a sort of um, pushing away of reforms uh, to end the monopoly of BESEC. This is this is one of the major assertions. This is the assertion of what's called it's been called Case Four Thousand, and that's the the harshest, the strongest uh, case against Netanyahu, the certainly the most serious one. And they've started uh, with a. Uh, a witness who basically was the person in charge of changing these stories according to his own testimony. Um, so Israelis are being bombarded day in, day out by this. And it's certainly troubling. Um, would Netanyahu like to distract and deflect from that? Absolutely. Is he using the security situation? That remains to be seen. Understood, thank you. Um, how long would a possible Bennett Lapid, Lapid led coalition last? Um, you know, I talked about obstacles um, for the formation of uh, a so-called right-wing religious government. Uh, that would, I would argue, have even more obstacles because even if you brought in all those parties of change and uh, Yamina, that's still 58. Now, there are two options at this point. Either you can be buttressed from the outside or maybe even inside from either Ram or one of the other Arab parties or you can make a deal with the ultra-Orthodox, but that would mean you'd probably have to leave out Lieberman and possibly even Meretz. It's possible, and I've argued this with a few people, uh, whether, whether someone like Lapierre, who also runs on a relatively secular agenda, would be comfortable sitting with the ultra-Orthodox. That would be quite a difficult um, and unwieldy government. First of all, it would be run by someone with only seven Knesset seats. Uh, which would be pretty difficult. Uh, and second of all, you would have so many competing agendas, it would not be uh, a relatively stable government uh, at all. Uh, so I don't see, if, if that would happen, I don't see it lasting very long. Uh, possibly the only stable government at this point is probably a right-wing government which would manage to peel off two or three uh, extra votes from other parties. But again, that's still a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of difficulty there if you look at the major players. There has been talk, interestingly, more and more about perhaps this is time that uh, Netanyahu calls it quits, maybe goes to the presidency. There is even talk of trying to pass a law that would allow someone under indictment to sit in the president's uh, residence. And the fact that this is being pushed to a certain extent from within the Likud means that the option is on the table. As I've said many times before, I don't think that Netanyahu's back is against the wall enough for him to take this option. Uh, but the fact that it's been discussed means that it's it's got to remain on the table at this point. Even though, so along those lines, even with Bennett, Netanyahu would need two votes, two for votes to get the 61. Any idea where those two votes would come from? <sighs> <laughs> that's the that's the big question. I mean, if we look at it, um, really the most obvious place would be uh, Gidon Saar's party. But if you look at the list there, you don't find too many people who would jump uh, back to Netanyahu. Uh, you've got Gidon Saar himself. There is talk, perhaps, one compromise where he would get the presidency. Uh, we see the elections for the presidency coming up in the next couple of months. And what's almost certain is it will probably become part of a coalition deal, the president's uh, office will become part of that deal. So it means someone from within the system. It won't be a sort of somewhat, you know, uh, someone like probably uh, Bushi Herzog, the uh, chair of the Jewish agency at this point. It's probably going to be 
uh, someone from the system as a quid pro quo for something else that they're going to do. So there is discussion that maybe Saar could go to the presidency and then other members of his party could go back in. But if you look at those members, without going th through them individually, there's a lot of dislike, mistrust uh, within there for Netanyahu. Um, so there's not a lot there. There, there is a possibility, um, but you, you, I, 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 I wouldn't put too much on it. You've got Israel Beitenu, which have been offered the earth before, which haven't wilted. Yeshatid, unlikely. Uh, Benny Gantz's party, there's a possibility. They've done it. They've done it once before. They've said they won't do it again. But uh, can Benny Gantz pull off uh, as well as he did in these elections again in the future? Will someone lower down on the list list say, you know, this is my last chance, and not only could I uh, retain being a member of Knesset, I could even get a ministry. Because, um, as we've seen before, Netanyahu will give a very high price to those who will defect. Um, so it, it's hard to say. It's hard to pinpoint exactly. I have my suspicions, which are the least likely, but that's still quite a high bar. Uh, there's no one obvious. Um, but again, he still has to, I think, he'll first of all, try and get past his first two obstacles. Although I'm sure he's working on it behind the scenes. I mean, there's there's been a lot of members of Knesset from other parties who've uh, come out in the media and say, we've been offered any ministry we want. We've been offered to be a reserve spot on the Likud in the future, basically offering them you know, the world in the kitchen sink. Um, so a lot of them have said no, but I think that will only happen when it comes down to it. And don't forget, he only has 21 days and there's a lot to achieve in 21 days. Usually they would give it, get an extension for 14 days. But I doubt that uh, President Rivlin will give him that extension unless it seems that he's very, very close. Um, so we still have a bit of time on that. And he's still working on those first two obstacles. But I certainly can't give you any names at this point. Uh, not because I, I can't, I, I, not because I don't want to. I just, you know, that there's no one that seems to be teetering at this point. And I think that will only come later. Mm, understood. Thank you. So one of our viewers writes, in your article, you called for a new election law as a resolution from current election deadlock is this is this possible to make these changes before the fifth election um almost certainly no unfortunately at this point because at the end of the day whichever coalition is made it will be supported by very small parties and those those small parties will be absolutely necessary to get that 61 plus uh, coalition and they're not going to vote uh, in favor of government reform that could put their future in jeopardy uh, it is something absolutely desperately needed, and it could only happen if a bunch of the bigger parties got together. At the moment, you know, you'd have to have at least five or six parties, and then you're getting into the single number parties, which themselves could be hurt by raising the threshold or any sort of government uh, uh, electoral reform. So with this particular consolation, I think it's extremely unlikely uh, that there will be any sort of uh, electoral form because quite simply there aren't the bigger parties who can do it together um, so at this point I, I don't think so but it is it is something absolutely desperately needed thank you there seems to be a considerable sentiment in israel favoring term limits for prime ministers what would have to happen to bring this about a constitution uh, yeah what would have to happen constitution well first of all we don't have a constitution we have basic laws um, so they'd have to change a basic law or add to a basic law. Uh, I think that is something which is becoming increasingly popular. 
uh, due to the longevity of the Netanyahu reign. Um, it won't obviously come about uh, if Netanyahu retains the premiership because he'll want to stay on as long as possible. But I think if the so-called change coalition does win, I think it will be one of the first laws uh, that will be passed because not only is that an opportunity, but also it's basically, it was part of the manifesto for, I think, Yeshatid, Yeshrab Beiteinu, um, uh, Gidon Saar's party, I think Bennett, I'm not sure if he, he approached it. So we're talking about a large number of that sort of change coalition. So I think it's likely if the change coalition somehow uh, was able to make a government, but if Netanyahu retains uh, the premiership, then it's uh, extremely unlikely. Thank you. So one, uh, one viewer writes, one has heard in the past of a government of national unity. Could anything like this be patched together to be an interim functioning government? Well, usually a government of national unity is usually two very large parties. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, we have one large-ish party and one medium to small party and then a load of very small parties. Uh, so it's, you know, usually that's when two of the, the bigger parties themselves make at least 50 and just need to be helped by one or two other parties uh, as happened. One could argue that the Gantz Netanyahu was something like national unity, but it wasn't really. The, the big national unity governments that we've seen in the past um, usually had two very, very strong parties as the anchor of the government. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what that would look like, and especially as almost all of the parties, in fact, all of the parties on the other side have said that they won't sit with Netanyahu. The big question is if Netanyahu relinquishes uh, his position as prime minister, then a lot of things could happen. But at the moment, that's not happening. And I don't see that happening at this particular point in time. And going back to the vaccines with Pfizer and that uh, getting that budget passed, what would have to happen in order to have that happen? Relatively, I mean, it's relatively simple. They would just have to meet and pass the budget. But um, according also to Avichai uh, Mandelblit, the attorney general uh, of Basically, the, the, um, the cabinet can't meet, the coronavirus cabinet can't meet until there's a justice minister, because according to the current coalition guidelines, there has to be an equal number of blue and white and liquid ministers. Without, at the moment, uh, blue and white have one less because they have, there is no justice minister and that was a blue and white appointment. So until that is rectified, that uh, cabinet uh, meeting cannot take place. Uh, so it's a relatively simple thing to do if the cabinet met because everyone would be in favor of it. There would be no great discussion or let's say no great opposition to it. Um, but the meeting can't even take place until that position is filled. And Netanyahu doesn't seem to have any interest in, uh, in, in, in filling it. And Benny Gantz said that the meeting will not happen until, until he, he, he or someone from his party is given that position. It's a stalemate, basically. <laughs> Understood. So what exactly does that mean you won't be getting the vaccines in? At this point in time, no further vaccines. We, we still have, I think, uh, about half a million, maybe a million, something like that, which they say is enough. Uh, there's around a million who have yet to be vaccinated of those who can. Some of them can't get it. Some of them object to get it, getting it. Um, but according to what we know, Pfizer will be getting FDA approval for uh, vaccination from 12 to 16 year olds uh, after handing in you know, the results of their testing period. 
Um, so they should be getting the results in the next couple of weeks. And Israel said as soon as FDA approve, uh, approves it, uh, basically we'll be starting uh, the program there. Um, it remains to be seen whether we have enough vaccines for everyone of that uh, particular age group. Uh, basically it will be a big blow uh, for Israel if it isn't able to close this. Um, I'm hoping that there'll be, as most people in Israel, that there'll be some sort of compromise on this and some way to get through it because Pfizer apparently behind the scenes is very angry uh, with this calling Israel all sorts of names, amateurish, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at this point, uh, nothing seems to be moving forward. Understood, thank you. So it was reported today that non-citizens may be permitted to come into Israel in May. Uh, what do you know about this? Yes, uh, basically it was a decision, I think May 23rd, but and there's, a, there's a big but at this point, it will only be for those who are vaccinated and only for group trips, because they say it'll be easier to track uh, members of groups. Um, probably if that's successful, I would assume within a few weeks after that, they'll allow individuals. At the moment, if you have a first degree relative in Israel, you can come now if you can prove that you have that relationship um, and you've been vaccinated or recovered from uh, the coronavirus. Uh, what hap is happening now with those people and what happened with uh, tourist groups in, in May is you'll have to take a, a PCR test 72 hours before coming. And then uh, upon arrival, you'll have to do a serological test to ensure that you do have the antibodies because there's a feeling that, uh, you know, there's a lot of countries in Israel, we have a very sort of official certificate with a QR code, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a lot of other places haven't given anything official, which, you know, they've given a piece of paper, which, uh, you know, anyone with a Word document could pretty much forge. So they want to ensure that uh, whoever's coming in really has the antibodies. <coughs> so they're ensuring that, uh, that they'll take that serological test uh, to prove that they have that, those antibodies when they come in. And as soon as that comes back uh, favorably, then, then they'll be free to travel. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time thank to you. update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Jonathan Tobin discussing how should Israel respond to Poland's Holocaust revisionism. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.